0: Welcome to A Brief Chat, I'm Jason Crane. Thanks so much for listening. You can find hundreds of episodes of this show at abriefchat.com. If you want to go beyond listening and become a member, that's easy to do. You can go to patreon.com slash abriefchat. Members at the dollar a month level get a weekly email from me with all kinds of links and stories and photos and stuff. You also get early access to every episode, you get thanked on the episodes. And at the $5 level, you get all of that, plus you get a monthly bonus episode and that is a very random grab bag Of either audio from the many years I've been recording various kinds of audio, or sometimes it's just me talking into the mic for 20 minutes about whatever I'm thinking about. And if that sounds uh, interesting to you, you can go to patreon.com slash a brief chat and become a member. But either way, thanks so much for being here and thanks for listening. My guest this month is a friend of mine from the online Shakespeare community. I think I've mentioned on this show before that during the pandemic, I got into a Zoom group uh, because of another friend of people, some of whom are professional actors and some of whom are folks like me. And we get together once a month and we read a Shakespeare play together. And it's just uh, one of the most wonderful collections of human beings ever. And one of those wonderful human beings is the actor Corey Anderson, who is with me now. Corey, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I'm so thrilled to have you here. Actually, I hadn't even thought about the fact that we might just mention Beers and Bard up front, but it does feel like it would be silly if if we didn't. I don't know. I think I do know. I think I can speak for both of us, but I want to hear from you it, when I say that it's kind of one of the highlights of my month each month.
1: Oh, hands down. Like I block it off on my calendar. Everything gets scheduled around Beers and Bard. And like if there is... The only reason I ever miss one is if I physically, for reasons out of entirely out of my control, cannot make it happen. And even then, I try to at least pop in for some of it um, because it was such a good creative outlet during the pandemic. But it also has become like my some of my closest friends, um, and so
0: yeah, the energy in it is just so beautiful, and it it's such a nice mix. I can imagine uh, entering into it with some nervousness when like half the people in the group are professional actors and then the other half of us are very much not. And we're all going to read, you know, what's often considered kind of the seminal collection of works for actors in the English language, but it never feels, it never feels anything but welcoming, which I think is it's really special quality.
1: Absolutely. It's just, it's so, it's so freeing and so fun, even as a professional actor, like, I've been acting my entire life. I've done some Shakespeare, but not a ton. And and so it became very quickly this wonderful chance to just play and watch other people bring these characters to life in the most sometimes the most random ways. I mean, you know, like <laughs> random accents will happen. I've definitely been in the middle thing where I'm like, it's a play I'm not familiar with, it's a character I'm not familiar with, and so I just decide who they are with no con, like no reason, and get like halfway through and realize that it makes no <laughs> sense. But we're in it now; we're just going for it.
0: Yeah, we'll be doing a Shakespeare play where one person has chosen a Southern accent, one person has chosen a Brooklyn accent, and one person has chosen like a Northern British accent, and they are all from the same town in, in the context of the play. It makes no sense whatsoever, but it doesn't matter at all. It's just a blast.
1: I think the there was one time we were doing King Lear, and I randomly got assigned King Lear, which was exciting and terrifying.
0: One of the great beers and bard nights ever, I will say okay. that your Lear was amazing.
1: Thank you. But I like I'd read the play once before, but not well enough to know what I was doing with Lear. And so just like every, every scene, I just was kind of just a toss up of like, which direction am I going? <laughs> and it was so much fun. But I also feel like I understand the play so much better having just like guessed my way through it. Absolutely. I'm hoping that I did Lear and Master Shakespeare and everyone else some some justice.
0: <laughs> well, as you said, you are in fact a professional actor. Will you just tell me a little I actually don't know very much about your life as an actor. Will you kind of tell me what that's been like? When it when it began and and what it's involved?
1: Sure. I grew up in musical theater. Um, my my parents, at a very early age, my a very early age for me, were subjected to like full blown productions in our living room, uh, where I was going to play as many parts as I could, probably the the princess, and they were going to play all the other parts, and they didn't really have an option, and they were wonderful and accommodating <laughs> about it. But when I was about five, my mom saw an ad in the paper that there was a new children's theater program starting up and she was like, well, we'll go and we'll see, we'll see what happens. And I just like took off mentally a full sprint. And by like a year and a half later, I told my mom that was what I was doing for the rest of my life. And my parents were just like, okay, this is what we're doing. And so I did as much theater as I could fit into my schedule as a kid Um, and then started doing straight plays in middle school and into high school, went to college for theater. Um, And then after college got an internship performing at Disney, which was how I met Victoria, who is who brought me into our Shakespeare group. And so I was very lucky that I have had a performing gig since I graduated. Um, in one way or the other, I've done like educational performing, I've done cruise ships, and then I got into film and television maybe six years ago. It was right before I moved to Atlanta. Uh, and since then that's been mostly what I've done, but oddly, like the pandemic was what brought me back to doing live theater. I did a touring show, touring musical that went around and performed at senior living facilities for people who couldn't go even outside of a pandemic, had a hard time accessing live theater. We would bring like a one hour show to them. Oh, that's great. So it's been so, it is my favorite, my favorite thing. It just like lights me up to be in a room with people where we all just get to create together. And especially in live theater, you get to interact with your audience in a way that you don't with film and TV. Um, and so feeling that exchange go back and forth. Um, that said, I filmed a TV show last summer and I it was so fun getting texts from all my friends when my episode came out. And and getting their reactions kind of in real time as they were watching it because I was playing, uh, spoiler alert, I was playing a murderer. (laughs) Um, Although I think if anyone is familiar with the show Snapped, like, you know, pretty much from the top of the episode who the murderer is. And that is not a role I usually get to play. Um, And so it was really fun to get all the reactions to my arson and poison activity (laughs) on
0: screen. Moving to Atlanta when your career is as an actor, particularly in film and TV, there was a time when that would have seemed like an odd move. But in the last couple of decades, that has become one of the hotbeds in the United States,
1: right? Absolutely. I think last I heard, we more, this might be inaccurate, more is produced and filmed in Atlanta than in LA. We are one of the biggest filming locations in the world. And the talent here is insane. Like there are so many, so many friends of mine or friends of friends who I see their work on TV or in a film and they just blow me away. And so it's been really exciting seeing more productions move here and kind of the the word getting out that Atlanta has a lot going on.
0: Yeah. You used to watch movies and TV and you would like wonder which part of Vancouver is this. And now you watch it and you wonder which neighborhood in Atlanta am I Am I in it's, right now?
1: It's fun. A lot of stuff, films uh, right across from where my now husband used to live. And so we'd be watching things. and would be like, wait a minute. I, we just drove by that 20 minutes ago. That's great. And we,
0: uh, for people who saw the title of this episode, um, we are uh, kind of setting up the life you have so that we can talk about some of the contrasts with... Um, things that have happened. And so another thing that I know that you do is uh, because, you know, everyone needs two entirely separate, unrelated, full-blown careers. Uh, you also are a professional baker and you run your own bakery at the same time as you are also a professional working actor. Uh, so tell me about Baby Deer Bakery, uh, which I'm so fascinated by.
1: Oddly, these are slightly more connected than you might guess if you haven't okay. the Baby Deer origin story. I used to bake a lot. I was like I don't need I cannot eat through everything I want to bake. And so I would bring them to acting class so that people would help me eat it all. And people would ask like like have you ever thought about selling them? I was like I don't no it's not really I just do it for fun. But kind of parallel to that I have a lot of friends with really severe allergies. Um I have really close friends who are celiac. I have friends who are allergic to like a dozen different things that all kind of like counter counteract each other with normal substitutions. And so I realized like they couldn't just go to a bakery and get a birthday cake. Or I worked briefly as an executive assistant in an office when I was living back home in California. And one of my jobs was to help with catering if we were catering an event or a staff appreciation lunch. And people with allergies couldn't participate um, because no one had, they were very, they kind of just like didn't bother to tell people they had allergies, they would just bring their own food. And so I realized like, it's logistically a little tricky depending on what allergies you're working with, but like, are there ways, can I find people that can cater to these allergies? And so when I started, if I was bringing something into work or an acting class and I knew someone had an allergy, I would just bake around the allergy. And so word kind of got out that I did that. And so I had a period of like one month where like four or five people asked me back to back to back if I'd thought about selling my stuff or when I was going to start selling my stuff. And so I just kind of like, was like, okay, universe, like I get it. I got point, it. yeah, Point taken. I'm sorry. I haven't been paying attention. I will sort it out and figure it out. So the name baby deer actually comes from my acting teacher in that class this isn't a video thing. So no one can see me, but I've got like the big eyes and the Disney princess mannerisms and all of that. And so my nickname in class was baby deer. And so I was like, what am I going to this? Like, it was the only name. Uh, And so I started, it's a fully licensed, I bake out of my home kitchen, um, but we're fully licensed and we do like all the standard like recipes with butter and sugar and flour, but I also have a gluten-free and a vegan option for almost everything on the menu. And I've done a lot of custom modifications. Um, So this weekend I'm doing like a vegan gluten-free sugar-free modification for someone with allergies. Um, I've done, someone was on like a medical, a medically mandated paleo diet. um, And I figured out a birthday cake for that. That one was, that one was tricky. Um, I've done keto modifications, but kind of finding a way to make it really as inclusive as possible because it's really lovely when someone gets birthday cake for the first time in however many years.
0: Does it involve a fair amount of experimentation on your part when you're trying to take a particular thing or set of things out of a normal recipe?
1: It does, especially if it's something I haven't done before and that doesn't have kind of a straightforward one-to-one swap that I've used in other recipes. So like flour, I have a gluten-free flour blend that works pretty universally with everything. And I know how to kind of tweak ratios to make sure it doesn't get too dried out. Um, But like the paleo birthday cake took a couple, a couple tries because I couldn't, I needed to use like palm oil, which I'd never used before did like a sugar-free, a vegan keto cake. That one was probably the hardest because keto recipes use a lot of eggs and when you can't use the eggs, right. <laughs> I think I ended up making so many gingerbread cake truffles out of failed gingerbread cake. Like everyone, I was like, do you like gingerbread truffles?
0: Here's three dozen of them. Here's three have. dozen
1: truffles. Please take them because I can't eat them.
0: Professional actor, professional baker, and the so far the ways in which we've mentioned the pandemic, although obviously the pandemic is a net negative, we've mentioned it in ways that have brought people together in community, the, the Beers and Bard online Shakespeare group, the fact that you were able to tour um, with this show, which put theater in front of folks who would have had a hard time otherwise going to the theater. But this is the part where our story is going to take a turn now because the pandemic ended up having a, a very unexpected and lasting effect uh on your life and so can you can you set up that story for us tell us what happened and and what's continuing to happen
1: yeah i feel like i kind of did the pandemic in reverse because i worked full time in person for the first year of the pandemic and then that came to an end and so i spent the second year of the pandemic doing more acting touring with the show um and looking for a part-time remote job and then Last summer, we had gone on a trip to Mexico. We got our engagement pictures done there. and the day after I got back, I woke up in the morning with kind of a sore throat and I was supposed to go to an in-person acting gig that day. And so I was like, let me just let me just check. I've been on planes. Um, Mexico City was so on top of their like health and safety protocols. but well, let me just check. And that rapid test turned red immediately. Like, I think I'd put it down, but like glaring red line. So, but I like, other than the sore throat, I felt mostly fine. So I was like, okay, well, let me call the gig and get them, let them know they have to find someone to cover me in the next hour. And then I like did a huge grocery order. So I, I was like, well, I can't leave the house, but I'll have a ton of groceries. I'll order a ton of ingredients so I can recipe test all these things. By like three that afternoon, I started not feeling great. My throat sore throat got worse. I was tired. Everything was just kind of. I was like, all right, well, never mind. We'll go sleep it off. Because um, most people, like most people I knew that had had it been and had been symptom who had had symptomatic COVID you know, they felt really rough for like five days, maybe 10. So I was like, well, okay, I guess I'm in that group. And by, so that was Tuesday by Thursday, I was struggling to sit up by Friday. I couldn't stand and I couldn't speak. And I didn't realize how sick I was. Cause I, all I knew was like, everyone is tired with COVID. Um, And so I didn't realize that like my tired was not normal tired. And so by Saturday, like I was struggling to breathe unless I was at like the exact right, like halfway between sitting and lying down. If I wasn't at the right angle, I couldn't breathe. I couldn't sit up. I couldn't stand up. If I had to like get myself from bed to the bathroom, I had to like army crawl and like face plant on the floor and rest multiple times. Like, and so my, my, Fiance was like, I'm going to call the advice nurse and we will probably take me to the ER. And so we went to the ER and nothing showed up as abnormal. They gave me some steroids and a couple other like one-off medications to kind of like boost my immune system. They gave me an inhaler and they sent me home and I was like, all right, so we'll ride it out.
0: So they were saying you you have just a severe case of COVID, but we don't, we don't see anything. And I
1: have no risk factors. Like I've been super healthy my whole life. Like I used to run marathons, half marathons, like performing is a super physical job. So it's not like I don't have asthma or diabetes or like anything that they were concerned about. So they're like, here are some steroids, go home. And the steroids helped for a little bit for like a day or two and then stopped helping. And then like a month later, I still wasn't better. Wow. I was testing negative, but I still wasn't better. And so, and I still couldn't talk. And so my fiance is like on the phone with my PCP. So we tried like more vitamins to boost my immune system. We tried another course of steroids. And so it just kind of kept... Like nothing was really helping. And so then it was like, well, let's check cardiology because she's having chest pains and shortness of breath and like is completely non-functional and cardiology didn't find anything. And so then it was like, okay, well, can we get her in? Where do I go next? Because the ER hadn't done a PCR test on me. And so since I only had a home test, I wasn't eligible for a lot of long COVID programs Um, Oh, wow. Okay. You have to be able to prove like a doctor lab, lab test that you had COVID. And so we ended up getting in to a pulmonologist who actually doesn't focus on long COVID. She focuses mainly on asthma, but that happened to be who they scheduled me for. And she luckily has some patients with long COVID and just kind of like dove in and was like, well, I have no answers for you, but... Anytime we find anything that we can test for, we will test for it. And f- like every thread we could find because my lung function tests were not normal. Um, those are luckily getting slightly better, but they're still not quite normal. And we don't really know why. Um, but what really made the difference is, and I got into like speech, like speech therapy um, because my voice didn't, it was three months that I couldn't speak. I think you probably remember I logged into Beers and Bard one day, just because I missed everyone, because I had been sleeping 20 hours a day for months. And I just sat there and listened because I couldn't talk. But I got into speech therapy to to fix that. And after a couple sessions, we got my voice working. But there were no answers for what was happening to me or why it was happening or what to do about it.
0: That feels to me like one of the most frustrating possible experiences where it's not that you're not trying to get to the bottom of what's going on and you're going to medical professionals and no one seems to understand, no one can tell you what it is that's wrong. It just feels like it must be unbelievably maddening to be going through Exactly
1: that. And the fight, like I, you have to fight so hard to just get seen at all because you have to find like the right symptom that they'll see you for or you have to like have someone that will refer you to them. But even then, like, Maybe or maybe they don't have any familiarity with long COVID and there's like months long wait. I mean, like sometimes I get lucky and it's a two month wait to see a new, a new specialist. Sometimes it's a seven month wait to see a new specialist. And all this time, like I couldn't, I can't leave the house without assistance. Um, we have a wheelchair that we use that we bought thinking I need it like once or twice. And we're just like, well... We're gonna go do a thing and we'll take this i can walk really short distances like from the curb to the front of wherever whatever place we're going on a really good day to like pick up lunch or go for lunch but i can't walk like i couldn't walk through a grocery store and go like buy a gallon of milk because we were out and the tricky thing with long COVID is it's an umbrella term it doesn't actually explain sure what is happening it's very different person to person. It just says like, you got COVID and now you're still sick. Not with COVID, but that's what started it. And that was kind of the other hard thing is I knew people with long COVID, but none of them were having the experience that I was having, which is not to say that they were not dealing with big things like that were really impacting their lives negatively. But they had maybe like, diabetes or allergies that came from COVID, or, you know, like symptoms that people could kind of explain and they could kind of manage. And I had no frame of reference.
0: And yet. I interrupted your timeline, but no, can different. you can you tell us how you how that continued? How did you get whatever answers you've gotten so
1: We got them ourselves. My fiance started reading medical journals and reading research papers. And he stumbled across this condition called myalgic encephalomyelitis, uh, ME for short. And it was like reading a paper that had been written about me. It's commonly known as chronic fatigue syndrome, but that's kind of misleading because the chronic fatigue is a, is a big part of it, but they're, 200 something symptoms that can be associated with it. And it's everything from muscle aches, dizziness, shortness of breath, neurological issues, autoimmune issues, digestive issues, like you name it, it can mess that, pick a system, it can mess it up and it varies a little bit person to person. But the big thing with it, and it was a really big game changer for us, uh, was the, the main symptom is something called post-exertional malaise, which means that since your body doesn't produce enough energy or just doesn't have enough battery life to do everything you need to do in the day, if you go past that energy limit, you'll eventually pay it back. And it's not immediate, like when you run a little bit too far and you get a cramp. It's like you'll read something that's too, that like takes too much brain power, or you'll talk to a friend for too long, or you'll walk a few steps too far. And then the next day or two or three days afterwards, some or all of your symptoms will skyrocket in severity. And it'll take you a day, a week, um, longer to recover. And kind of get back to where your like normal baseline of symptoms are,
0: which sounds since it's not immediate like I ran and I got a cramp. It feels like you always must have to be on alert then because you since you're not immediately going to know oh I've just gone too far. You have to just always make sure you're not going too far. It you sounds
1: like always be on alert. And it the thing that's so frustrating with it is that on. An average day or a bad day that's easy to keep track of, but on a good day where you actually feel like you have the capacity to like do some things, you have to just kind of keep in the back of your mind, hey, I know you think you feel fine, but like go sit down, go lie down and rest because if you don't, you don't know how bad the payback is going to be Sure. because the crash isn't necessarily proportionate to what you've done. So it could be like, you've done like doctor's appointments and testing tends to send me level me for days at a time. And it'll be things like, even if I'm just lying there, I had like a a neuromuscular test that wiped me out for, I think, I think a week. And all I had to do was lie there, but they were checking like with electrodes to see how my body responded to stimulation. And I mean, by the time I was done, I couldn't. I couldn't sit back up by the end of the test. And it took me, it was four days, I think, before I could sit up again. Wow. And so it could be something like that, or it could be, I went out to like a tea shop with a friend for her birthday, and we got dropped off like at the door so I didn't have to walk. We ordered the tea, we sat down, I put my noise-canceling headphones in because sensory input can be really draining for me, and we sat there for an hour. In the quiet and had a nice relaxing chat. And then I spent seven days recovering.
0: I want to go back uh, to a I was going to say a small point. It's not a small point. Um, and the scope of the failures of the American healthcare system is outside the scope of the conversation that we're having right now. So we'll just take it as read that it is largely a failure. But uh, you said your then fiance, now husband, uh, discovered this. I just want to point out, he's not a scientist, like a research scientist or a doctor or something like that. I think it's important to say he's a lay person
1: yeah, no, who he just is
0: doing is this reading.
1: An actor, filmmaker, <laughs> right? Uh, who moonlights as a software person. And kind of what we found talking to other people with Emmy uh, and other people in the long COVID community is that doctors don't know about it. Emmy isn't taught in most medical schools. And a lot of the information that's out there is inaccurate or it's outdated. And so people that have heard of it will know of treatments that have since been like remove from the recommendations because they're really harmful, but that information doesn't get disseminated. And so a lot of patients are networking to talk to each other on Twitter or Instagram or support calls of like, what are they trying? What are they doing? Um, But mostly, and the thing that really kind of saved me, even though like my life is still super limited is finding by like some universal magic, this medical condition and recognizing so much of it. And then all the advocacy that patients with this condition are doing and all their efforts to try and like get the word out about it because they knew when COVID hit, they're like, because Emmy is huge, almost always viral onset. It can be like, it could be mono. It could be COVID. It could be, You know, like a cold you had, and then six months later, you're really sick. But COVID was a really big kind of like one-to-one correlation. Like we could see COVID happen, and then we could see people get ME. And they're estimating that it quadrupled the number of ME patients. Wow. But it's really hard to get a diagnosis because no one knows about it. There are, I think, 21 specialists in the country and they're mostly at like independent clinics with really long wait lists. And so you to get to them, you have to be healthy enough to travel. You have to wait until they have an opening. Uh, they don't take insurance. So you have to be able to pay out of pocket and then submit a claim for reimbursement to your insurance and hope for the best. But the ME patients kind of like got the word out about how to manage the condition because there's no treatment. They don't know what causes it. They don't know where the root causes are in the, in different systems. Um, there are no, like, there's no cure for it. Um, so most people manage it for their entire life at different levels of severity. But kind of like the trick to it is pacing, which is you figure out like where your limit is, even though it's a moving target, you kind of like average it out and know where your limit is. And you make sure you always stay below that for as much as you can. And so like I have two chairs in my kitchen now so that if I'm baking, I can sit uh, and not wear myself out. I have two sets of noise canceling headphones um, that I sometimes layer over each other so that I'm not taking in too much sensory stimulation. But you just kind of have to be really careful and figure out ways to like lessen the load on yourself and really scale everything back as much as possible. And then choose what is valuable enough to spend your energy on It's like a crazy mindfulness exercise. Yes. But a very infuriating. Mindfulness <laughs> I exercise. was going to
0: say, yeah, not exactly what the Buddha had in mind, but uh, the, let me ask you since, uh, so I wanted to set up uh, who you are at the beginning, both because you are a human being, not an illness, but also so that at the end we would be able to kind of do a compare and contrast. uh you do two very physical things for a living. baking is physical but it sounds like mostly on your own. the other thing you do if sensory input is an issue, you do a thing that is literally grounded in the idea of sensory input. uh that's that's its entire that's its entire mode of existence acting. so having heard kind of what your life and career were like, can you describe what they are like now?
1: Yeah. So for acting, I have pretty much taken a full leave from acting because it's very physically demanding. It's very mentally demanding. It's very emotionally demanding. And all of those things on their own in short periods would wear me out. But with acting, like you need to be able to pull 16 hour days and I cannot pull, I mean, a six hour day would be Far and above my capacity, Sure, but like, I couldn't even attempt it. And so I do a little bit of remote work, but most of that has become admin instead of performing to kind of support some of the gigs I was working on. And so it's a much less mentally and physically taxing job. So for the most part, I'm not acting at all right now, which is why Beers and Bart is always such a treat. I hadn't been well enough to read in a while. And so last month I finally got to read again. And I said my first line and like, I had to hold back the tears because I just don't get to do it ever. And then with baking, fortunately, like I am a one, a one woman team for baby deer, but last summer I became my fiance now husband took over a lot of it we stopped, I just stopped taking orders because I couldn't do them. And I still have to turn down orders when I'm just not, I'm not up for it. Like I can't handle it, but I've kind of built in like a time window. Like people need to give me enough advance notice that I can mobile order the ingredients because I can't go shopping. If I'm in a crash, I have time to hopefully sleep it off and still have time to bake whatever they've ordered. But I really like, contracted the circle of what I take on and how much I will take on and how much advanced time I need to give myself to complete things successfully. Um, but he handled a lot of the deliveries last summer because I couldn't leave the house. Um, he would help, you know, with the baking and the decorating. And luckily kind of how we met is we're both actors, but we both bake and so we'd run into each other at events at our acting studio, and people would want to make sure we knew each other because we were the two bakers. <laughs> and so I got very lucky there that I could be like, I like, I can't. And so we've kind of scaled back the bakery, but I just did kind of combining all worlds. I just finished a big charity event um, organized by a patient, an ME patient in the UK called Blue Sunday. And it's a big day of advocacy and fundraising for Emmy, but most like mostly it's a way for people who usually can't participate in things. Like we can't go to big fundraisers. We can't like run a charity race. We can't go to a March. Like some people can, Um, people with mild, uh, mild Emmy can, and then we'll go home and like sleep forever while they wait for their bodies to recover. Um, but people with severe ME can't get out of bed ever. Like they can't have their lights on maybe like they live in total isolation and there's this whole crazy spectrum in between. So she organized this as a virtual event where people like have a cup of tea and like a slice of cake or a cookie or like whatever they can, their bodies will tolerate And they take a picture and they post it with a hashtag, and we all kind of virtually celebrate with each other. Um, So this is my first year participating. And I was so grateful just to have something to participate in and to have found people that were also kind of living with and managing this condition. Uh, And so I was like, well, how can I use like what I can do to make a difference. And so Baby Deer did like a limited edition menu of tea party boxes and cupcakes with blue rose frosting. And all of the profits went to charities and nonprofits that support uh, ME patients and advocacy so that hopefully we someday have a cure or at least have access to more options for treatment and management. I set aside like two weeks to make those things, like make the cookie dough, lie down, right? scoop the cookie dough, freeze it, lie down. <laughs> like so, two weeks of things, which was good. Cause I crashed in the middle of it sure, and had like lost three or four days where all I could do was lie down under a weighted blanket with a light blocking sleep mask on and hide from the world until I was ready. But then I came back and we got it we got it done, and a lot of the tea party boxes went to other to other Emmy patients to help them celebrate, which was something I never would have guessed I would have gotten to do.
0: That's amazing. Just as we come to a close, you said uh, a few minutes ago that there's no cure. What, uh, To whatever degree you are comfortable looking into the future, what does the future look like as far as you can tell at this moment?
1: I mean, I'm hoping right now I kind of sit in the... Right, kind of snack between mild and moderate. Like, I can't work. I can't. I need a wheelchair to leave the house, but I'm not bed bound. And so I'm kind of hoping that we can keep inching towards like the more mild side. There are like a really small subset of people that do recover uh, and go into a full remission and can go more or less back to their normal lives. And so I'm hoping that because we were able to identify it so early and kind of immediately go into preventative, preventative care, that we can get as close to that as possible. I mean, I would love to be back acting in whatever that looks like. And so fortunately, my husband is a filmmaker, writer, director, actor, and so... If he has any say of it any say in it like it will happen uh it just will probably look very different but the goal is just to manage it as best i can so that we have the best possible outcome fingers crossed that i am one of the i think five percent of people that get a full recovery and remission and so trying to stay very optimistic and hopeful about it while also just being grateful for where I am now um, and making the best of, of where we are and figuring out like, what can I do? And how can we make things going for tea with a friend or hopefully traveling more accessible so that I can do all the things I love with all the people I love But I've discovered I've really enjoyed connecting with with people. I was really nervous about sharing about Long COVID because I, especially as an actor, I didn't want people to think that I wasn't able to do things anymore. And then I found kind of right about the time we found out about Emmy and what it was and started thinking that was probably what was going on, I found people who were sharing about their experiences and it made it so much less lonely and I won't say it made it less scary because the moderate to severe, especially the severe to very severe side of the spectrum is terrifying. And, you know, you watch people, my friends with Emmy Emmy that I've now made, like go through the ups and downs and it's really hard to go through that with people but it's really heartening and lovely to have people to go through it with. And so that was kind of where I started kind of like hinting at things on my social media of just like, it's there's not a lot of easily found information unless you know where to look. And so if I could share a little bit that would give someone another person that was going through something similar so they felt less alone or like leave a comment on someone's post that was sharing about what they were going through because it's really, it can be really lonely when you can't leave your house or you can't interact with your friends and your family in the way that you're used to. But it's been really, really lovely to find new ways to do it. And I find that I'm much more aware of how grateful I am for those now that I need to be a little bit more deliberate about it. Or sometimes a lot more deliberate about it.
0: My guest for this episode is Corey Anderson. Corey, thanks so much for sharing your story. I, I really appreciate getting to hear it.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: You're listening to A Brief Chat. You can find hundreds more episodes at abriefchat.com and you can support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash a brief chat. I'm Jason Crane. Talk to you next month on A Brief Chat.